Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome, everyone, to the second episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and myself are bringing you news to cut through the financial uh, noise media outlets um, and to give you updates on what's going on in the markets, the economy, and some things going on in the financial planning world. So how are you doing this morning, Matt? Doing great, Mark. Good. Well, as we previewed to everyone in the following, or the excuse me, the previous episode that uh, we're going to start the the podcast off every week by just reviewing some of the performance numbers um, of the major market indexes that we track. And I'm going to give you the numbers for the past week, uh, the previous month, and year to date. So starting off with the S&P 500, uh, we are up 1.9% on the week, up 8.2% on the month, and up just under 20% on the year. Uh, Moving over to the Dow Jones Industrial Average, we're up 0.9% on the week, up 8% on the month, and up 16.2% on the year. Moving to the NASDAQ, we're up 2.85% for the week, 8.8% for the month, and 22.2% for the year. Uh, Next is the Russell 2000 index, and the Russell 2000 is an index that measures the performance of approximately 2,000 small cap American companies, Uh, and the Russell 2000 is up 2.67% for the week, up a little more than 6.5% for the month, and up 16.5% for the year. And the last index that I wanted to mention is a all-world index, XUSA. So this captures large and mid-cap companies uh, across 22 of the 23 developed markets, excluding the United States. Um, So this index is up 1.75 for the week, 5.37 for the month, and 13.23% for the year. Um, so with that being said, I want to move on and just hit on the treasury yields right now. So the two-year uh, U.S. treasury yield currently sits at 1.77%, and the 10-year treasury yield currently is sitting at 1.98%. Um, so those are your updates for performance so far for uh, the week, month, and year. Um, so now Matt and I are kind of going to move on to discuss any big news or headlines or current events from the week that we think are pretty important to mention. So with that being said, Matt, uh, what are some things from the past week in terms of big news, headlines, or current events that you would like to discuss? Mark, I think first and foremost, we have to talk about the G20 summit and uh, more specifically U.S.-China trade. So as it was highly anticipated, uh, President Trump, President Xi had a face-to-face meeting. Seems that obviously the outcome is that there's a temporary uh, truce on on the trade war. And I think what that's going to do is it's really going to bring the focus back to the fundamentals coming up here, which we'll talk about in uh, corporate earnings. And it's going to bring the focus back to the Federal Reserve, which we'll also discuss coming up here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of anticipation going into this G20 summit meeting, Matt. And 
Um, obviously, we got a big rally in the markets on Monday. Uh, I think we were up close to 1% or somewhere around there. Uh, but one of the things I found interesting was that on uh, Tuesday morning, uh, futures were down and I already saw headlines on CNBC saying that there are renewed trade war fears uh, just after we were up on a big Monday after the G20 summit. So seems to be the recycled excuse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so just again, to point out that uh, you got to take everything, uh, every headline that you're reading uh, from these outlets with a grain of salt, because one day it could be one thing and the next day it could be the complete opposite. So I mean, to add to that, Mark, I actually saw over the past week, I forget which day, but uh, woke up at 6 a.m., you know, futures were up. They were talking about, you know, trade related uh, was the reason they were up. And then as I got into the office right before the market opened, I saw the exact opposite <laughs> headline. So I think one thing that's good is as we continue through this podcast and as the listeners subscribe and listen to week after week, I think they're going to learn a lot of tidbits that you and I are going to pick up on that we notice these are the things that the market's really focused on. And maybe not that day, maybe not Tuesday, but week after week, these are the overwhelming things that are going to be the major catalysts for the markets. Yeah. And they're going to, they're going to pick up on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so going back to the, the summit a little bit, um, I think I'll give my opinion and you can give your opinion, sure. Matt, but I think both the U.S. and China um, have a lot to lose with what's at stake. Um, I think... President Trump is looking to get something done so he can go on the campaign trail and say that he struck this large trade agreement with China, which hasn't been done in a long time. Um, and I still think for the Chinese economy, there's a lot at stake. So I think both sides really do want to come out uh, with a win here. Now, I don't think it's going to be anything imminent. It might be months or even a couple of years until a final trade agreement gets done, but at least a placeholder uh, within the next couple of months, I think could be expected. I mean, to build upon that, Mark, I see both sides need the win, and I'll dig a little deeper. Let's take China as an example. Even this morning, July 3rd, came out that Dell is going to be diversifying upwards of a third of their supply chain away from China. You know, they want to get rid of and try to eliminate some of that political risk, and that's going to be a direct threat that is China holds out on historically some of these trade negotiations. They're going to see as time goes on, you know, some companies might not make further investments into the supply chain with that type of risk. Exactly. And then on top of it, I think if you look at the country, they have a lot of uh, political problems right now in, in Hong Kong. And just taking it at 10,000 feet, you know, that's going to be something that President Xi has to battle internally. And then you go back to the U.S. with Trump being up for re-election in November of next year. You know, he feels the pressure, as you mentioned, when he hits the campaign trail hard, especially the first half of next year, you know he's going to want to be out there presenting that win, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So I think the stakes are high. I think it then leans towards the probability of either this truce just staying where it's at right now, or maybe even possibly things getting slightly better. But it's something that we're going to pay close attention to and talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But at least for now, I think that those fears have been subdued for the time being. Obviously, they were from uh, 2018 up until about a uh, couple months ago until they got reignited again. But sure. at least for now, I think that that's going to be on the back burner. And so then the focus goes to what now? Right. The Fed. The Fed. 
So um, for those of you listening, the Fed obviously is going to be meeting again on July 30th and 31st. There is widespread Wall Street anticipation that the Federal Reserve is going to cut interest rates by a fourth of 1% uh, or 25 basis points. And the market, I think, is going to hinge on every word of the Fed statement on the 31st at 2 o'clock Eastern time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this, um, you know, is has definitely been in the front uh, headlines so far after the G20 summit. And the market right now is baking in almost a 100% chance that the Fed is going to cut rates in July. And that would be the first time that the Federal Reserve cut rates um, since uh, the last recession that we had. Um, and Jerome Powell, the head of the Fed, said that they'll utilize any tools necessary to sustain this economic expansion. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see what they do, because there are some people at the Fed right now that are not in favor of that rate cut. Um, so I personally think that the market's a little ahead of itself um, with them having the possibility of cutting in July. I think there's a higher possibility, um, again, in my opinion, that they cut later in the year in the fourth quarter and not in July. Um, But again, it just goes to show you that the Fed is going to use all tools necessary to sustain this economic expansion. I mean, building upon that, Marcus, is my opinion. You got the Fed meeting at the end of July, right? Their next meeting is six weeks later, the middle of September, and then the end of October, and then obviously the second week of December. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, the Fed tends to not to make major monetary policy changes during an election year, right? Mm -hmm. So then that brings their window of opportunity to do something between now and the end of December. right? And so with the market pricing in such a high probability of at least one rate cut, and then there are people out there, there are strategists from multiple firms who think there could be not only two, but upwards of three quarter point rate cuts, I just don't see it with some of the underlying economic data that we have, those, that multitude of cuts Mm -hmm. on top of the fact of the temporary trade truce. So from my perspective, I think that presents Fed risk going into the fall, Mm -hmm. that they disappoint the market by not cutting rates enough. Right, exactly. And and that's something that, you know, people want to understand, too, is that a lot of people ask the question, well... You know, if we're cutting interest rates, doesn't that mean that the economy is not doing as well as it should be doing? Um, but right now, you know, I personally feel like there's just not enough negative data that supports an interest rate cut. I don't see it either, Mark. So that'll be an interesting thing to keep an eye on. And as always, we will uh, keep updating everyone of that every week uh, to see if there's any news on that end. Um, The last thing in terms of big news and current events for the week is that Q2 earnings season begins in mid-July, and it's going to last until about mid-August. So uh, corporate companies are going to report their earnings for um, Q2 of 2019. um, And typically going into that earnings period during a bull market, there tends to be a run-up into earnings. Um, in anticipation of good earnings. So, Matt, do you have anything else you want to mention on that? No, I mean, just to kind of make it uh, really simplistic. Um, so this is going to be the earnings report for the second quarter. So it's going to be April 1st to the end of June. 
And then a lot of these companies, as Mark said, are going to report the last two weeks of July, the first two weeks of August. As we start to get to this midpoint in the year, not only is the focus going to be on what they did for the second quarter, but a lot of companies are going to be giving an update on their full year guidance that they've given us at the beginning of the year. So I would agree that some of these names will tend to run up into earnings. And as we've seen in prior earnings reports, if they, A, not only meet expectations for their second quarter earnings, but they also need to come through with that full year guidance. And you and I both know what happens when they don't do A and B. Exactly. Exactly. Stocks go down the next day after they report. Yep. Exactly. So in earnings season, coupled with, again, the chance that the Fed's going to cut in July, we could be in for some volatility here in the summer, I think, Matt, um, especially as we get later into the summer. But, you know, if corporate earnings aren't as good as expected and the Fed doesn't cut, then that could be a recipe for some more volatility uh, in the summer than what we're typically used to, because typically in the summer months, uh, traders are gone, people are on vacation, uh, volatility tends to be a little lower, but um, just looking out what's on the horizon, I think that we could have a little more of an uptick in volatility this summer. Absolutely, I would expect it. And on top of that, I think any company that misses earnings, what's going to be the number one excuse why they missed earnings? Mm-hmm. Trade, exactly. right? They're going to say U.S.-China trade has affected the psyche of our customers, they're not ordering as much, mm-hmm. and then the companies that beat it will barely talk about it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So I think that we'll be watching closely some of the underlying individual stocks that we own for our clients. We're paying very close attention uh, to these earning reports and yep. what they say during those conference calls after they report. Absolutely. Um, well, if Matt, if you don't have anything else to touch on in big news or headlines or current events for the week, um, we can kind of move on to articles and tweets. Let's do it. Um, and research from the week that we found interesting. So. Um, I know you had a couple of things, Matt, starting with um, some interesting data on negative yielding government debt around the world. Yeah, I mean, one thing I think we do a good job with is always looking at potential black swan events or potential events that are starting to manifest themselves that the market in general is choosing to ignore, right? Mm -hmm. And one of those I, I highlighted this week has to do with government debt around the world that actually is being issued, Mark, at a negative yield, all right? And this is a new phenomenon that really started over the past five or six years, and it's growing in popularity. So I'm going to share some statistics from a a research report. It's called the Lead Lag Report, okay? The Lead Lag Report. And this data was from uh, July 1st, so it's very recent, two days ago. And there's now more than $11 trillion in negative yielding government debt around the world. And that accounts, Mark, for 30% of the total debt issue. Wow. So, you know, the implications uh, for this overwhelming presence of negative yielding debt, it's pretty clear. The global economy is getting weaker. You know, investors are flocking to safe haven assets to protect their capital and thereby driving interest rates lower and lower. And central banks are slashing their benchmark rates in order to make cash equivalents less attractive and motivate consumers to purchase and lend, right? Mm -hmm. But we have to then follow the crumbs. What could this lead to with negative yielding interest rates? 
going to lead to the profitability of what? The banks, mm-hmm. right? So bank insolvency risk is starting to go up in Europe right now, or the Eurozone. Now, European banks are especially reliant on interest income for their profitability. And obviously, negative interest rates are making this very difficult. So one of the things that we are keeping a close eye on is the performance of a lot of these European banks, you know, which most likely are going to need a bailout. You know, if you go back to 07 and 08, a lot of the American banks, they did a kitchen sink write-off of all of their bad debt. The Europeans did not do it in that fashion. So for many years now, a lot of people are calling these European, these big banks, almost zombie banks, in <laughs> essence. Yep. And you're starting to see it in their stock performance. Mm-hmm. So one thing that the lead lag report was mentioning is that the stock prices of some of these big banks, like Barclays and Credit Suisse, they're down 40% from just where they were 18 months ago. And then you got the poster child of the European bank crisis right now, Deutsche Bank. Mm -hmm. And they have $49 trillion in derivatives exposure. And the stock's down 63% over the past 18 months. Mm -hmm. So that is something that I think uh, investors need to be monitoring. Because when you look at um, systematic risk within the financial system, In 07 and 08, what was the domino that knocked over, that started it, was the insolvency of Lehman Brothers. Mm -hmm. And so are we saying or am I suggesting that this is going to happen and, you know, we need to be aware of this is coming? No. But is it something that needs to be at least on your radar screen Mm -hmm. and that we are monitoring? Absolutely. Exactly. And just to add to that, and actually I was going to bring this up on a different article that I had looked at, but this kind of goes hand in hand with what you were saying. And it's interesting because there's been money rotating out of stocks and into treasuries for quite some time now, but we're still managing to hit all-time highs in the S&P 500. So if we're hitting all-time highs in the S&P 500 with money rotating out of stocks and into government debt, then what's going to happen when money starts coming back into stocks? My take from that is when we see money start rotating back into stocks, that we're going to get an even bigger surge in the markets going forward. So it's kind of this interesting relationship we have that people are flocking to safety because um, treasury yields are so low right now. But at the same time, we're hitting all-time highs in the stock market. So how are we supposed to interpret that? Yeah, I think one of the toughest things for investors right now you know, we just eclipsed the high that we made last September. So if someone invested in a large cap index fund, say, Mark, last mm-hmm. September, they just got over that high watermark mm-hmm. just recently, right? I think um, what comes to mind when you mention that for me is overall investor sentiment right now. And there's a lot of um, research that you can look at that tracks overall investor sentiment. And a lot of the indicators are showing that we are at decade lows on sentiment. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to your comment. How can that be if we're hitting a 52-week high? Right. And I think it shows all of the cross currents in the market right now. Everything from trade to the Fed to what's going to happen with the election. What's going to happen with taxation. Mm -hmm. And when you have too much data points with uncertainty, people get paralysis, and Mm -hmm. they don't do anything. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is a perfect example of, you know, when we see headlines in, in the media saying, well, the market's down 2% on China's trade worries or the market's up a percent on anticipation of a July Fed cut. There's so much going on in the markets and the economy that no one really knows what's driving the news on that day or that week or that month. So the one thing I get a lot of from people is, okay, Matt, you mentioned all of these uncertainties. How do you feel confident finding investments that you think are worthy? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why I prefer to be picking individual companies rather than the market as a whole. Mm -hmm. Because let's just take just a general theme that's working right now. Disruptors, Mm -hmm. right? And when I say disruptors, what's the poster child stock that comes to mind? Uh, right now, Amazon or Visa? Yeah, the, people are talking about that a lot, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that it helps that when you have all of this noise out there, right? Mm-hmm. In all of these uncertainties, I think you got to take the focus back to the fundamentals of mm-hmm. some of these individual companies. Because I think going forward, and I'll give you a, my, my personal opinion, the next five years, you're going to start to see more of a stark difference in performance between companies. And let's just pick a sector, and I'll just randomly pick something, mm-hmm. like Coke or Pepsi. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you're going to see more of a performance difference between those two. Now, we're not going to give an official opinion on these types mm-hmm. of names during a podcast, mm-hmm. but you see what I'm trying to get at. And I feel that overall, with just the with all these uncertainties, I think that that's where... Um, really an edge if someone's willing to put in the work and do the homework. I think that's where it's going to be seen. Exactly. And, um, you know, highly recommend that everyone listening uh, get in touch with their advisor and get their opinions on the markets. It's always good to know what you own inside of your investment accounts Um, because some people just own the general market and the account's going to do whatever the market does. And some people uh, manage individual securities or a broad diversified basket of funds. But um, get inside your, your broker's head or your advisor's head and understand exactly what you own and where the risk lies inside of the account. And what their strategy is going forward, especially mm-hmm. over the next 18 months. I mean, leading into the presidential election year, it's definitely not going to be a cakewalk. Exactly. Any other tweets or research or anything that caught your eye this week, Matt? Or? That's the big stuff. I mean, we've had our head a lot in the G20 and then uh, regarding uh, what the Fed's going to be doing. So that's been a lot of the focus over the last week. Of- yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so next, we're going to move on to the financial topic of the week. Um, so every week, we're going to go over a different financial planning topic um, to kind of hit on that end, uh, since that seems to be very popular among um, audiences today. So this week's financial planning topic of the week has to do with uh, really breaking down retirement planning to three simple steps. Um, And this conversation was sparked from an article from the blog called Of Dollars and Data by Nick Maguli, who is the analytics manager for Ritholtz Wealth Management. And the article is titled The Easiest Retirement Choice. And this was written back in February uh, for people that want to go read this on their own. Uh, if you just type in Of Dollars and Data by Nick Maguli, um, and the article is titled The Easiest Retirement Choice, you can go and read the full article for yourself. Um, and I don't know about you, Matt, but the most common question I get from clients and prospects is, 
how much money do I need to retire? All the time. And the answer is... First question. (laughs) Exactly. And the answer is not the same for everybody, right? So it's going to depend on how much someone spends in retirement, how their accounts are invested, and how much that they have saved over their working life. Um, So I think this conversation will give people a good idea of kind of how to backdoor the calculation of what they need to do to get to retirement and not run out of money. Love it. So what Nick did in this article is he kind of, like we just mentioned, broke retirement down into three basic buckets is number one, how much you save before retirement. So this is how much of your weekly or monthly paycheck is going into your 401k or how much you're contributing to your IRAs. Number two is your asset allocation. So how your accounts are invested. And number three is how much you're going to spend in retirement. So Nick kind of ran this simulation based on the following uh, premises. So before retirement, we're planning on you working and saving money for 40 years. So assuming you start saving at age 25 and you retire at age 65. So for this assumption, we're going to assume that your annual income starts at $50,000 and only grows with inflation. So this is conservative without any raises, just growing with inflation. We're going to assume that we spend or we save 10% per year of your income and reinvest it into some sort of portfolio. And the next thing we're going to assume is that your saved money goes into a portfolio consisting of some mix of U.S. stocks and bonds. And this is going to vary, as you'll see here in a couple of minutes. So that was our before retirement assumptions. So the in retirement assumptions are that when you retire at age 65, you live for 25 years. So you retire at 65 and you pass away at the age of 90. Your spending in retirement is going to be identical to what it was when you were working. So for example, if you were saving 10% of your income each year, this implies you were spending 90% of your income. Mm -hmm. So the last assumption we're going to make is your nest egg is invested in whichever portfolio you invested in before retirement. So the investments aren't going to change. It's going to stay the exact same way for when you're working and in your retirement years. So if we were to start the simulation in 1926 and go through every possible 65-year period, which is 40 working years and then 25 retirement years, Mm -hmm. and finish in 2018, there would be 28 different retirement simulations that we could test. So to start, I want to give you an example of starting in 1926, and then we'll go on and talk about the different occurrences as we got closer to 2018. So the first example I want to give is, let's say you started working in 1926, and again, going back to our assumptions, have an income of $50,000. So by the time you retired in 1966, 40 years later, your real income was the same exact thing it was when you started, but your nominal income would have grown to $89,000 just due to inflation. Yep. So if you save 10% per year of your income over this period, you would have saved a total of $240,000. So if you had that $240,000 invested in 100% bonds, you would have $382,000 when you started retirement. If you invested it in a portfolio with 60% stocks and 40% bonds, you'd have $1.6 million in your accounts when you started retirement. 
And then if you invested your entire portfolio in 100% stocks, you would have 3.7 million when you started retirement. And those numbers were inclusive of the Great Recession. Exactly. Exactly. So it goes back to the point of a lot of people, it comes down to the emotional thing of riding out these short-term volatility waves like we had in Q4 of 2018. And by selling during those periods, what the effect can have long-term on your portfolio. Yeah, I mean, I'll just throw this out there if I can, Mark. I mean, as I read through the article, you know, preparing for the podcast, this is the first thing that jumped out, right? Which was the biggest mistake I think individuals, investors make is selling low and buying high. Mm -hmm. And I'll say it again, selling low and buying high. And, you know, we see it all the time. Individual investors tend to make big financial decisions based upon their emotions, right? Mm -hmm. And in times of market stress, those tend to be decisions made out of fear. Mm -hmm. So you take, as you said, Q4 as an example, individual investors sold near the bottom or the end of December. What's the next major issue they have? Getting back they get in back in, yep. right? So um, one thing I always kind of keep in my back pocket is there's a, um, a research firm by the name of Dalbar Inc. And they do a lot of studies of investor behavior and analysis of investor market returns. And they consistently show that the average investor earns below average market returns. And so for the 20 years ending the end of 2015, the S&P averaged 9.85% per year. And then their study by Dalbar says during that same time, the average equity fund investor only earned 5.19. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then going back to some of the data here. So um, again, remember how we said that we're going to continue to spend 90% of your final income at age 64. Uh, so we kept it pretty simple throughout um, your saving years and then your retirement years. So in our example, in your first year of retirement, you would have spent $80,000, which represented that 90% of your final income. But with that spending, your portfolio would run out of money in five years with 100% bonds. Mm -hmm. In less than 20 years with the 60% stock, 40% bond allocation. And the only scenario where you did not run out of money before age 90 was 100% stock exposure. So I mean, the tall tale sign there is 100% bonds is not going to help you keep up with the growth rate that's required. Exactly. So in this scenario, you really have two options, maybe three, but I personally think you have two options because the third is harder, a harder change for people to make to make sure you don't run out of money. It's number one is you save more than 10% of your income. Okay. Or number two, you're more aggressive in your investment allocation. Yep. Um, and number three would be reduced spending in retirement, which most people don't want to do. They've worked their whole life 40 years to do what they want to do in retirement and trying to have that conversation with someone telling them they need to cut back their spending in retirement is a tough one to have. And it's tough for people to understand that. Um, but that's why you have to put in the work and to save more during your working years. So you never have to worry about that, um, you know, when you retire. That's right. So I would, I would mimic that. So once again, you're saying if the savings rate is lever one, you can pull, mm -hmm. right? And increase. Yep. So lever number two is your asset allocation, i.e. how conservative or how aggressive you are, mm -hmm. right? And then lever three is the, the painful one, right? 
that's where you either have to delay retirement or you retire with less than what you expected. Exactly. And to put this to real life, you know, there's a lot of times Mark and I meet, and I'll give you an example, um, a steel worker. And then what they'll say to us is, I, I have to retire at 60. My body can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that eliminates lever number three. Yep. And then so we have to then work with levers one and two, like you were suggesting. Exactly. And I think an easy way to overcome this too, Matt, is uh, we have a, a rule here at Jessup that uh, is the 1% rule. So every year you increase your 401k or your IRA contributions by 1% up until you max out your 401k or your IRA. That way you're not solely dependent or have to be fully invested 100% in stocks for 40 years because you're making that extra contribution. So I think that's a really easy thing that people can do. And just where with inflation, um, you know, you're not going to miss that 1% and you're not going to notice it from a year to year standpoint. Yeah, I mean, if we go to someone, Mark, and say, hey, you got to increase your contributions by 5%, that's a shock to their monthly budget. Right. Right. I think the 1% rule by raising it 1% a year till they max out is a phenomenal financial trick that works out really well. And I'll go on to say, you know, if you reach the point where you're maxing out, continue to save, just do it in an after-tax account. Right. 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 And what that's going to do for you in retirement is going to give you different buckets of taxation money that you can touch. Mm -hmm. Some that's tax deferred like an IRA, some that's a post-tax savings like a Roth Mm -hmm. or some that's in an after-tax brokerage. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the big thing here is that, you know, investors need to emotionally get past the short term swings in the equity markets for the long term benefits. And it's pretty simple. If you don't want the volatility of a 100% stock portfolio, then you need to dedicate yourself to saving more and spending less. Absolutely. Those are your your only options. Um, So again, the main takeaway here is worry about what you control, which is your savings rate primarily. And, you know, have a trusted advisor worry about the allocation for you. Find someone that you can trust that can allocate you properly based on how much you're saving and how much you're spending so that you can get to that 65 years old and not worry about running out of money, essentially. I mean, yeah, that's the bottom line, Mark, because I think a lot of individual investors we see it time after time tend to make emotional-based investment decisions, as I alluded to earlier, whereas realistically, um, we're not immune to it, but we're a lot better at setting emotion aside when someone like ourselves or whatever professional that they trust yeah. can can do that. Exactly. And there's going to be times where bonds outperform stocks, but over the short term, over the long period of time, you have to get your mind in the right mindset that you're taking more risk now to have less risk in retirement because the risk in retirement is running out of money. I don't think it's the typical you hear when you get closer and closer to retirement, your money should get more conservative and more conservative. I think you're doing a disservice by doing that to yourself in retirement because there's a chance that your money's not going to grow enough to have enough in retirement to live till you're 90. And so I think one of the topics in the upcoming podcast, Mark, is to talk about target date retirement funds, which Mm -hmm. are very popular inside a lot of these 401k plans. Yeah. Because I think we need to tackle that topic so we educate people. Because the default is the closer they get to their age 65, mm-hmm. what does it do? 
it's more conservative. It gets them more conservative to the point where the maximum stock exposure in a lot of those funds is just 20%. Right. So we'll definitely add that to the list. Um, and especially if you guys reach out to us and if that's something you want to hear us talk about is the target date retirement funds or different fund options and 401k plans, Matt and I would be happy to go over that uh, in a podcast. So again, that was just one example, Matt, but I want to talk about the entire 28 period simulation just to, I think it'd be great. to, to tell people that we're not just picking a one-off year where, where this happens, okay? So again, going back to our assumptions with a 10% savings rate invested in 100% stocks over the entire time period, which was 28 periods from 1926 to 2018, the portfolio never ran out of money in retirement. And that's with bear markets, that's with depressions and recessions, yep. but the money in the portfolio never ran out before 90. With the 60% stock allocation and 40% bond allocation, that account ran out of money 17 of the 28 periods or 61% of the time with the 10% savings rate. And this is before the age of 90. Exactly. Correct. And 100% bond allocation ran out of money every single period with a 10% savings rate. So I just wanted to throw those numbers out there that we weren't arbitrarily picking 1926 starting, that that was the only period that these numbers were true. These numbers rang true throughout this whole simulation. And then the interesting thing is uh, if you bump the savings rate down to 5%, these numbers are even more astounding to me. So if you bump your savings rate down from 10% per year to 5% per year, each portfolio allocation runs out of money before the 25-year retirement period is over. Wow. So that's even if you're invested in 100% stocks, but you're only contributing 5% of your income every year, you're going to run out of money before the age of 90. So I think the takeaway here is if you're someone listening to this podcast and you're at a 5% savings rate, I think you need to take advantage of, Mark, your recommendation about the plus 1% strategy. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it's the simple, most simple step someone can implement mm -hmm. to turn that around. Yeah. And in our industry, Matt, we're always about baby steps, right? That's right. So we never want to shock someone. And this is one baby step that people can take every year. Set a calendar reminder on January 1 of the following year to increase your 401k contributions or your IRA contributions just by 1% and it'll do you wonders over a 40-year time period. Absolutely. Because if you do that over a 40-year time period, you're in increasing your savings rate by 40%. Absolutely. So just some other stats um, for everyone before you, you wrap up. Um, with a savings rate as low as 13%, the 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio never runs out of money in any of the 28-year periods. So you again, you would have to bump up your savings rate to 13% for 40 years rather than 10%. I know it may not sound like a lot, but over 40 years, it makes a huge difference, doesn't it? Especially with compounding, right? Exactly. But then you compare this to 100% bond portfolio which still runs out of money in some of these periods, even if you're saving 30% of your income. So you've taken the, the, this illustration, took it as high as 30, mm -hmm. and with 100% bonds, still didn't make it every yeah, time. Yeah, still didn't make it every time. 
So Nick had a really good quote in here that I absolutely love this quote from Nick, Matt. And he said, so by taking less risk now, for example, 100% bond allocation, you actually take more risk later. And that is kind of what we talked about a couple of minutes ago with you're really doing a disservice to yourself in retirement if you're investing in a 100% bond portfolio. Don't disagree. So you're going to take less risk over 40 years, but then for the 25 years where you need that money because you don't have as much income coming in the door, you're going to run out of money before you turn age 90. That's right. And I think you alluded to it as well. You know, sometimes people retire, Mark, and what's what's been ingrained into them. You need to get real conservative. Mm -hmm. You're on a fixed income right now. Yeah. And with some of the statistics that you went over, I think this could be a wake-up call for people that going to 100% bonds might not be a feasible option for them. Exactly. And, you know, and, and we always advocate for, you know, investing based on the risk reward environment that we're in at that point in time. That's right. right. Um, so I think a, a lot of advisors can help with the allocation problem. And I think the main thing that I wanted to get out, out of this article, Matt, is that there's a lot individual investors can do their own without having a whole bunch of knowledge about the stock market or the bond market or the economy or financial planning that they can do and understand that will help them when they get to age 65 or whenever they retire so that they don't run out of money in retirement. That's right. So it's kind of the secret sauce in my eyes is control your spending rate, control your savings rate, have a trusted advisor that can help you with the allocation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of on autopilot from there and just understand that the choices that you make today are going to have a drastic effect on uh, what you're able to do in retirement. Couldn't said it better. So is there anything else you wanted to add, Matt, until uh, next time? Close this, this podcast. Not out? this week, Mark. I think you did a phenomenal job and Hope everyone has a great 4th of July. Yeah. So thank you, everybody, again, for listening to the second episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. We hope you all have a wonderful, safe 4th of July, and we will see you next week um, on the next episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Have a great holiday weekend. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, 
we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.